This is an audio essay. To read the actual essay, go to mahanmccann.substack.com. The link is in the description on Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. Oh! Carl Gustav Jung was a Swiss psychologist, prominent at the turn of the last century and the creator of depth psychology. Jung is an early proponent of the hero metamythology, a discoverer of the collective unconscious, and a psychologist who spent his life cataloguing the universal symbols of the mind through dreams and active imagination. Jung was attempting to respond explicitly to the meaning crisis and the dissolution of the Western mind, which he was witnessing firsthand in the moment in Germany during World War II. Jung also argued that the origins of the current individual troubles started with the death of God and the loss of the Christian worldview, which had reigned for a thousand years. However, Jung thought that because God had disappeared from the external world in secular society, that God would once again reappear in the psyche. In this essay, we will be operationalizing and situating the worldview we have been expounding in a modern context with Jungian individuation, drawing some connections with Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophy, and then using a dramatic example through Jordan Peterson's analysis of the myth of Pinocchio and how this is a mythologized process of self-development and can reveal for us lots of things we can learn about ourselves. Jung's theory of the psyche. Freud was Jung's mentor, and Freud had a hydraulic and essentially mechanistic theory of the psyche, being a materialist doctor originally. Freud was a towering figure who made one of the most tremendous psychological discoveries of the turn of the century with the unconscious mind. And the recognition that much of what we do happens outside of consciousness. As Freud wrote, we are not masters in our own house. Over his materialism and his dogmatism around his sexual theory, Jung eventually split with Freud. For Jung, the psyche was a self-regulating system like the body which is why some thinkers call Jung the Plato of the Psyche. Jung looked at the Psyche as a pantheon of living and warring psychic organs called archetypes that strove to maintain homeostasis and aimed at development through the process of individuation. This is why Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. For Jung, the sum total of the conscious and unconscious mind, which was also the sum total of our full potential, was the self. The self was what drove us towards this process of individuation, to psychological wholeness. The self had three levels. The ego, the centre of our consciousness, sense of identity, organising thoughts and feelings, and that linked the inner and outer worlds. Then the unconscious, which had two levels. A personal unconscious containing the totality of our knowledge, which was not currently being accessed by attention. The personal unconscious, which contained everything outside of direct attention, yet to be remembered, and thus was the house of all our future development. Then the third part of the self is the collective unconscious, populated by universal symbols, which are the stock characters of the human mind. These stock characters of the mind are called archetypes, which comes from the Greek word archetypos, meaning pattern, or the original pattern from which all copies are made. 
To understand archetypes, these are images of inborn patterns of behavior, like how a bird builds a nest by instinct. The bird doesn't have to go to a nest-building school. For Jung, this is part of our biological mind, which are populated by universal symbols we see in myths and stories that represent essential patterns that we have been conditioned to perform. He came to this understanding empirically by examining thousands of his patients' dreams and cataloguing the overlap of universal symbols. He would have secular patients that would be coming in with deep religious, Egyptian, Greek, Christian symbols in their dreams, and he couldn't figure out why. <coughs> Some argue he was also influenced by James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, which came out at a similar time, which deals with the unconscious and the so-called monomyth which Joseph Campbell abstracted when he wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Coincidentally, the book that Campbell wrote before The Hero with a Thousand Faces was a skeleton key to Finnegan's Wake. Jung, agreeing with these other two thinkers, argues that the monomyth is essentially the structure of the unconscious, and that dreams were like personal myths given to us by the unconscious in an attempt to expand our consciousness. Jung described dreams as impartial spontaneous products of the unconscious psyche outside the control of the will they are pure nature they show us the unvarnished natural truth and are therefore fitted as nothing else is to give us back an attitude that accords with our basic human nature when our consciousness has strayed too far from its foundations and run into an impasse so essentially young believed dreams could show us things which we didn't know yet but which we needed to know Important self-knowledge that was hidden from consciousness, which could be reintegrated through a process of recording and analysing dreams. Plato also looked at dreams as communication between gods and human beings, and as a way of gleaning important insights for guidance and wisdom. Self-knowledge for Jung was knowledge of the unconscious. Therefore, dreams, active imagination and free association were essential ways of getting in touch with yourself that was outside of consciousness. Jung thought that the problem for modern individuals was that we lacked a myth to live within. In previous essay number three, we took a deep dive into myths, and particularly the hero metamythology, as a generalized narrative description for action of the individual process of creative adaptation or success, one that was motivationally and affectively relevant. Myths are dramatic maps for knowing how to live well and how to act, but as modern individuals, we no longer believe in myths as viable. So we have the problem of having to live in one while not recognizing them as valid. Jung saw this as causing all sorts of existential problems for the modern individual, which exposed us to chaos and entropy and led to neuroses. Jung said, everybody acts out a myth, but very few people know what their myth is. And you should know what your myth is, because it might be a tragedy, and maybe you don't want it to be. The way the individual comes to terms with the myth they're in, and changes it to a better one, quite possibly, is through the journey of individuation. The journey of individuation. Jung appropriated the natural philosophy of alchemy to plug this void in the modern world. Alchemy, on the surface, appeared to be a proto-science attempt to transmute base metals lead into gold. The alchemists would do this by creating something called a philosopher's stone, which was a 
stone or some sort of precious gem that could turn base metals into gold and allowed the owner to live forever. Jung looked at alchemy not literally as an attempt to turn transmute one metal into another, but as a profound metaphor for personal transformation, and that the Philosopher's Stone was essentially a philosophy that could bring about that transformation. Pierre Grimes, a prominent Platonist thinker in the late 70s, argued that Jung was philosophically a Platonist. He makes this argument because Jung's philosophy of self-formation or self-development is rooted in hermetic philosophy, which is alchemy. However, hermetic philosophy was attributed to the semi-mythological character Hermes Trismegistus, Considered until the Renaissance to be a contemporary of Moses, he was later shown to be from the 2nd or 3rd century AD, which was a time of Middle Platonism. Why is this significant? Grimes connects individuation to the Platonic Anagoge, which we have spent quite a bit of time describing here, and indeed Jung's thinking connects it to the hero metamythology as well, giving us convergence from three separate but interpenetrating traditions which significantly increases the plausibility of the argument that we are touching on a perennial philosophy of self-development. In alchemy, the prima materia was lead, and Jung took this to be the unformed individual, the symbol of which was the Ouroboros, recognisable as a dragon eating its own tail to form a circle, which symbolised chaos and pure potential. Here we can draw a connection with the Neoplatonic journey again, which puts pure potential, matter, at the bottom of the hierarchy of being, and pure actuality at the top. This is no different to alchemy, with the top spot, which was the philosophical gold, being an analogy for psychological wholeness, which is the same aim in Neoplatonism of becoming one, or oneness. So I think it's fair to look at the journey of alchemy, individuation and Neoplatonism as aiming at the same thing, the integration and coordination of disparate parts of the psyche into a unity. So how does individuation work? The shadow. There is no straightforward method for Jung's journey of individuation, but typically the apprentice piece is the confrontation with the shadow. The shadow represents the rejected aspects of the psyche and hence holds transformative potential. This involves integrating aspects of yourself that are often taboo or rejected in society, like sex and aggression, or maybe even these days, order and discipline. For young, individuation is how one self-develops out of an undifferentiated unconsciousness, by integrating the unconscious parts of the psyche into consciousness, separating pure potential and using inner experience to build one's consciousness. It's a dialectical process between unconscious and conscious minds, like the Platonic Anagoge. This was all based on a principle that Jung had called antiadromia, which he describes as the most marvellous psychological law and defines as the emergence of the unconscious opposite in the course of time. This roughly means that an opposite unconscious reaction compensates eventually if we live in such an unconscious and one-sided manner. For example, a chronic nice guy who completely rejects anger and aggression will often become resentful and possibly sadistic and cruel as a result. By their rejection of anger, which is the archetypical god Ares, this results in possession by this archetype. This sounds quite fanciful, but another way of thinking about it is that instincts have much more power over us when we are unconscious of them. Obviously, self-control by definition is conscious. We have to consciously inhibit unconscious drives to have control over them. So when the nice guy rejects aggression, 
this inhibits his ability to actually integrate his aggression properly and use it for important virtues like independence, assertiveness, tenacity, and drive. A weakness of Jungian analysis is that it often is profoundly introverted and recommends that these things occur only in the mind or through imagination. However, it is entirely possible to practice this externally and in your life. To use the nice guy example again, one way for the nice guy to overcome this dilemma would be to practice being assertive and saying no to people and making sure that their needs are met as well as everybody else's. Plato also articulated this law of antiodromia in Phaedo. Everything arises in this way, opposites from their opposites. A chronic nice guy who breaks down and then begins to integrate their aggression positively into discipline, tenacity, motivation, etc. is a more actualized individual in Jungian terms and hence has leveled up. Peterson uses the myth of the Knights of the Round Table to articulate the confrontation with the shadow. When the Knights set off for the Holy Grail, a symbol of psychological wholeness, each begins their search where the forest looks darkest to them. In other words, where they are most afraid to go. The idea is that the place you least want to go holds the most potential development because it's somewhere you have not been. As it said in alchemy, in Stereoquilinus in Venator, in filth it will be found. This is a fundamental reorientation in life, from your comfort zone to the rewarding zone of proximal development in Vygotsky's language, or to the edge of your competence. You could argue this is the start of each of our own personal hero's journeys, entering the forest wherever it is darkest to us. Unfortunately, unlike the Knights of the Round Table, we have to make this choice every day, even when we feel like shirking it off and running away. Stephen Pressfield in The War of Art describes the obstacle to one's development as resistance, which is a voice in your head that tries to discourage you from taking on the challenges that will help you grow. David Goggins calls this voice the governor, like a car governor that controls the speed limit, and the psychologist David Stutz in The Tools describes this inner obstacle as part X. Whatever you want to call it, the point is that there's something in you that doesn't want you to be your best. And it's something that you have to overcome, the rationalizing voice of fear. The confrontation of the shadow is necessary because it is the proverbial leaving the cave, the safety of the village, entering the dark woods of the unknown, and it leads to the gold of a more integrated personality. The confrontation of the shadow can be summed up in face what you reject, accept what you refuse to acknowledge, and you will find the treasure the dragon guards. The anima and animus. Jung argued that confrontation with the shadow and the ensuing consciousness enlargement brought one into contact with the contrasexual element of the psyche. For women, this is a man, the animus. For men, this is a woman, the anima. This is a confrontation with the inner other. And similarly to the shadow example, if we do not pay homage to this inner other, then we will become possessed by it. If the shadow is the apprentice piece, then the anima and the animus are the masterpiece. For a man in Jung's philosophy, the anima demands success, his greatest, or she will torture him and drive him to illusion. Jung looked at the male anima as progressing through four stages. First is Eve, which is indistinguishable from the personal mother. The second was a personification in Helen of Troy, the ideal sexual image. The third was Mary, which manifests in religious feelings and a capacity for lasting relationships. And the fourth is Sophia, wisdom. A man's anima 
functions as a guide to the inner life, mediating to consciousness the contents of the unconscious. This is a functional relationship between the unconscious and consciousness. The stages of development for the female animus are comparable, uh, and you can read more in the actual article, but they also ultimately culminate in Hermes, which is worth mentioning, so we can make this a little less abstract. Wisdom or Sophia is personified in Greek philosophy by the goddess Athena, who is often put together with Hermes in joint sculptures called a Hermanthena. They both frequently assist crusading heroes and are the gods of good judgment, quick wit and cunning. The statue was featured in Cicero's classroom and he thought of it as an appropriate emblem of learning. For Jung, the anima and animus stage is about overcoming projection because he thought that what we didn't know was projected onto the unknown in the world. Really what I think this is about is about attention and salience. In the first article we touched on this briefly, that our attention is pulled in ways we can't understand by unconscious forces. Hermes is the winged messenger of the gods. He mediates between the unconscious and the conscious mind. Interestingly, Hermes' mother mythologically was Maya, the goddess of illusion. The Greeks knew we had this problem with attention, and their panoply of gods was the sum total of unconscious forces that can act on our attention. By sacrificing to the gods and negotiating with them, we gain the ability to direct our attention. In Jungian psychology, these gods are trying to orient you in a particular direction by making things more vivid and salient to you, attracting your attention. They illuminate and darken your path as they guide you, and if you are possessed by the wrong unconscious forces, they may take you somewhere you don't want to be. Integrating these unconscious forces into a functional unity manifests the right pathway for you to follow. A pathway, if the instinct is good, that will guide you to your self-realization. For Jung, the aim with the anima or the animus is for her or him to become depotentiated, So we are no longer possessed by our unconscious states, which is the flip side of becoming autonomous. Pinocchio and spiritual transformation. We can make sense of Jung's journey of individuation using the myth of Pinocchio. Peterson frequently in his Maps of Meaning lectures uses the story of Pinocchio as a metaphor for personal transformation and growth. For Peterson, we all start out like Pinocchio created by someone else, purposeless, and puppeted by unconscious forces. Pinocchio is a puppet, but he has the potential to be a real boy. And if you remember, Aristotle actually uses wood as his key example of potential, which I thought was funny. So the story of Pinocchio tracks this puppet's journey to become real. The source of Pinocchio's potential realness is a wish by Geppetto on a shining star that he would become a real boy. Geppetto in the story is the culture and tradition that created him. And the blue fairy who offers Pinocchio to make him a real boy if he can prove that he's brave, truthful and unselfish. In other words, virtuous. And we might be reminded of Plato who connects becoming virtuous as connecting to what is most real. She is the positive element of the unknown that can turn him into a real boy if he goes out and tests his character. However, Pinocchio gets off to a bad start and falls in with a rough crowd. He goes through several temptations to remain sick and weak, to become a false celebrity as an actor, and to reside on a pleasure island where the boys he goes with literally become 
braying donkeys who are slaves to what are essentially the devil. Luckily, Pinocchio has his conscience with him, a bug called Jiminy Cricket, who bugs him to do the right thing, but doesn't really know more than he does just where he shouldn't be, similar to Socrates' daemon. Pinocchio eventually escapes Pleasure Island by jumping into the sea in chaos, and then he tries to return home, but this is a failure to launch. When he tries to return home, he realises it's not the same, that God is dead, and his home is no longer his home. His father is not there when he returns. A golden dove comes along and drops a note in front of him, that his father is not dead, but he's actually stuck in a whale's belly. Then his conscience, Jiminy Cricket, convinces him to go and look for his father, who it turns out has been swallowed by a fire-breathing whale named Monstro, of course. This sequence apes the biblical story of Jonah and the big fish. When Jonah tries to avoid the call of God to go and preach to his enemies, Nineveh, which is a kind of shadow confrontation as he rejects Nineveh, but then his refusal to go out and to face his shadow and escapes on a boat results in him being thrown over by the crew when a storm hits and getting eaten by a big fish and ending up in its belly for three nights. Peterson describes this mythological belly of the beast as facing the dark night of the soul to activate your potential. It is the mythological motif of rescuing your father from the underworld. The father, who is God, culture, tradition, is stuck in the unconscious. And so the hero must go down and rescue him. But in order to do so, he has to go to the deepest part of the ocean where the most terrible thing rests. The darkest part of the forest, pretty much. How can we make sense of this in a more naturalistic way? And after virtue, McIntyre argues that our traditions provide our moral standpoint on the world. As we've already discussed, to be a cognitive agent is to have an implicit frame of value. Reality is combinatorially explosive, so we have to prioritise one thing over another in order to perceive and to act. So we're already seeing the world through a frame of value. The father is essentially the frame of value. This is the unconscious implicit value system that's been handed down to you from the past. Peterson argues that culture is composed of dead fathers and references the story of Osiris who is dismembered in the underworld and then revivified by his son Horus. And Horus literally gives his eye to Osiris, meaning that you have to give your attention to revivify the dead tradition. The rescuing of the father from the underworld is a mythological motif of entering the unconscious and bringing to consciousness your implicit value system, which is equivalent to the Socratic know thyself which really means know the principles guiding your action. Peterson explains that we have to grapple with our potential in relation to the expectation of the traditional ideal. And this can be a very bitter pill to swallow because the ideal will reflect us badly and highlight our failures and weakness of character. And so it's a profound humbling, such a humbling mythologically that Pinocchio has to die in order to do it. However, when he dies... After rescuing his father, he doesn't stay dead and is resurrected as a real boy by the Blue Fairy. It's ironic that the answer to Nietzsche's argument that God is dead comes from this weird story about a puppet rescuing his father from the belly of the whale. The journey to resurrect his father from the belly of the whale is what proves Pinocchio's character as virtuous and what allows the Blue Fairy to turn him into a real boy. What this implies is that to become an autonomous individual 
we must become aware of the implicit frame of value guiding our actions and seriously start to grapple with the cultural and traditional ideals submerged in our unconscious and that this is what it means to develop a self. What would have happened if Pinocchio didn't rescue his father from the underworld? There is a biblical story, The Curse of Ham, which articulates the opposite of the rescuing of the father story. Ham was a son of Noah, and his son Canaan was cursed to be a slave for his whole life, because he saw Noah in a moment of vulnerability, drunk and fallen asleep naked at the bottom of the stairs, and he judged him negatively. This might seem a bit harsh, cursed for all eternity for simply looking at a drunk guy naked at the bottom of the stairs. What Canaan's brothers did was that they walked backwards and they covered his father and then brought him upstairs and they didn't judge him. Canaan felt contempt, a sense of moral superiority toward his father who represents the culture. So how I read this is that the father represents God, culture and tradition and is the implicit frame of value that guides our actions, which is flawed in many ways and outdated, but which without we are confronted with the chaos of the world. We didn't make our implicit frame of value, and we probably don't understand it very well. So the values can seem antiquated or downright silly, and so we are constantly in risk of hubris, of thinking we are better than the traditional value system. This judgment of tradition is akin to judging your father naked at the bottom of the stairs which, according to this story, results in you becoming a slave. Why? Well, for the same reason that rescuing his father made Pinocchio free, no longer a puppet of unconscious forces, my argument would be that our executive functioning, the ability to inhibit desire, which is self-control, has been forged by culture and not nature. If you think about the Nietzschean idea, without God, everything is permissible, Suppose you reject tradition and refuse to rescue your father from the underworld. This means you refuse to know thyself because you refuse to access the part of yourself that comes from the culture and the tradition. And hence you lose the cultural cognitive technology that can regulate your behavior and as a result become a slave to your desires. You remain puppeted by unconscious forces. This is hardly surprising considering everything comes from tradition, every idea and language. So if we are rejecting it, then we will fail to see virtue from vice and develop real wisdom. In summary, rejecting tradition and God leaves you vulnerable to the whims of powerful, transpersonal, evolved, unconscious forces that will puppet you like fate. And therefore, to take command of one's fate, one's future, involves this rescue of the implicit value system trapped in the unconscious and is akin to the Socratic know thyself philosophically. Plato often argued that philosophy is preparation for death. And in this Pinocchio story, we see how the hero's journey involves a sort of death. The death of the old self so that the new self can live. Conclusion In this essay, we've taken a brief run through Jung's philosophy based on alchemy and shown how it connects to the Neoplatonic journey. And through Jung's ideas of the confrontation of the shadow, the anima, and rescuing the father from the belly of the whale, we've given a few mythological motifs for one's own self-development. More like way shrines are markers on a journey of self-discovery and actualization.
And in the next episode, we will be looking at some modern philosophers. We'll be looking mainly at the French existentialists, the humanists, and at Nietzsche, and about the philosophical mistakes that they have made that have led us into the meaning crisis, and about how we can leverage attention to go beyond them.